Shall we pray? Lord, in your mercy and your grace, will you send your spirit to inspire us in all this apocalyptic writing that we are looking to, Lord. We pray that you will go forth, open our ears that we might hear, Lord, our eyes that we might see, and our hearts, Lord, that we would know the heartbeat of Christ for this world and for us, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Today I'm uh, touching on Revelation chapter 2, verse 8 to 11. 8 to 11 is only about uh, three verses. And so this is the shortest letter uh, to the seven churches of, uh, of this particular area. And I, I wanted to give a little bit of background to this. In a way, this is a, a letter. It is a personal letter to the church, but it is also a circular letter to all the other churches. I don't know about you, whether you like letters or you don't like letters, uh, but in a way, this is a letter with a heading to whom it may concern. In a way, that's, that's how you would uh, interpret this in its modern sense. Now, Here's a map of the region uh, where this letter was being sent. Uh, you would find, and I hope I can use the pointer here, uh, this area, Patmos, is the island on which uh, John, the Apostle John, or John the son of Zebedee, who is said to be the author of Revelation, would have been exiled here and written this uh, book of Revelation. This book is, uh, some commentators, uh, a smaller number, say that it's written somewhere in 70 AD or 60 to 70 AD, uh, but the majority of commentators say it can't have happened uh, before 68 AD uh, because of some uh, characteristics that are found in the book of Revelation, for example, about Nero. Uh, you find in the Revelation there's a story about this uh, uh, one horn that disappeared, went away, and then came back again in victory. Uh, there is this myth uh, that Nero, uh, the king or Caesar at that time, had committed, pretended that he committed suicide, disappeared. And whilst everybody had been rejoicing that Nero had died, he came back and then slaughtered those who had been rejoicing. Uh, so that's the myth that was, uh, that was given, and it's uh, symbolically written a little bit about this in the book of Revelation. But most commentators believe that it was written in the period of 80 AD. Now, uh, geographically, uh, the letters are written in a particular sequence. So from Patmos, if a person is traveling, the first letter would be uh, sent to Ephesus. So if you actually have your Bible and you open it, uh, chapter 2 begins with the letter to Ephesus, then the next letter to Smyrna. From Smyrna, it would travel to the north, to Pergamum. From Pergamum to Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and finally Laodicea. Now, uh, it's, not a it's not a topological map uh, in, in the sense that you don't see contours. Uh, but if you go online and you search, you'll find that it's rather hilly areas and there are quite a number of rivers uh, here and there. Why is it important to kind of have this map and know this geography? Because when you read the letters, the letters uh, refer, uh, for example, in Laodicea, it talks about uh, hot water, cold water, and lukewarm water. 
And so you're wondering, why does Jesus say, uh, because you are lukewarm, I will spit you out? Uh, well, because their geographical characteristics. The water that comes to this area of Laodicea, uh, it either comes as cold water from the highlands or it comes as hot water from underwater uh, uh, vents. If it's cold water, it's good for cooling down places and the cold waters of the northern region, uh, when they melt, they finally are drinkable. Uh, but if it's hot water, it's only good for heating up places for a hot bath. And when it's lukewarm, the waters that are in Laodicea are filled with lime and minerals. So it's really uh, not worth drinking. It's quite bitter. Uh, and, and so the idea is not for you to be a passionately hot or cold-hearted Christian. Uh, the idea is usefulness. So in all of these uh, locations and geography, part of how you understand Revelation is to understand the historical background of this particular place. So these cities are all in an area called Lycos. It's called the Lycos uh, Valley. And uh, Ephesus is probably the most powerful city of that period. It's a coastal city, uh, followed by Smyrna and Pergamum. The, the three cities of Ephesus, Smyrna, and Pergamum were varied in their culture. They had uh, the primary religion there was uh, emperor worship. And there were two centers where the emperor was worshipped as God and king. So when, you, when you're a Christian and you go there and you say, Jesus Christ is Lord, you are a counter-revolutionary rebel. Because everybody else is saying, Caesar is Lord. You are going around saying, Jesus is Lord. Now imagine uh, our local situation, if you go around and start talking about somebody else is Agong or King, uh, that automatically gets you derhaka, you know, traitor. <laughs> uh, and treason is sentenced by death. Apart from the worship of, uh, of Caesar as uh, the, the emperor or, or uh, yeah, the emperor cult, there was also uh, temples to Zeus, Apollos, uh, and also other pagan religions. Now, one thing to understand here is that the Jewish people were given an exception. They were the only people that were allowed to not uh, bow down and worship Caesar. Okay? I want to make this clear because in order to understand this letter to Smyrna, uh, that's necessary to understand at the background. So the Jewish people were the only exception because they say we worship only one God, you know, Yahweh, the invisible God. All other religions were allowed to operate as long as they would bow in allegiance not only to Zeus or Apollos or Artemis or Diana, if you were from a different uh, region, uh, but that you would also bow down your knee to emperor. Now, where does this put the Christians? The Christians at that time, early Christians, were Jews. Originally, they started off as Jews, but they began to uh, have people who were non-Jews. But as a Christian, you also, like a Jew, would not bow your knee to any other god. That would be a form of idolatry. 
And so the Jewish people began to uh, dislike these Christians who were from them, but not of them. And therefore, they began to accuse these Christians as not being Jews, which therefore resulted in them being hauled up to the Roman tribunals and say, are you a Jew? If you're not a Jew, then profess emperor as God and king. In other words, renounce Jesus and profess emperor as king. Or not even that, you know, uh, you don't even have to renounce Jesus. You just have to say uh, that Caesar is king, and Lord and king. Uh, and so this resulted in many of them being persecuted and killed. So this is the background story to understand this uh, letter through to Smyrna. Now, I've skipped Ephesus, uh, but I'm, I've gone on to Smyrna. But I also want to address uh, things about how you read the seven letters that are given. Again, uh, if you want to follow, there's a, a sermon outline in the middle of the bulletin with some fill-in-the-blanks. Uh, this part is not in your outline, so you may want to either take notes or, or remember this. So what is the general structure of all the seven letters? The seven letters, is always, it begins this way. It always begins to the angel of the church in a given city. So whether it's Ephesus, Smyrna, and, and then it says, write. Now, uh, this format is a prophetic letter. A prophetic letter written in rather apocalyptic style. So Revelation has particular genres, what we call styles of writing, for which when you read it, you need to understand the symbolism of what it means. And some of the symbolism is lost on us. For example, if an alien or a, another person comes and digs up a particular piece of historical writing that dated the period of 2019, Right, and he found in this statement a statement that says, just do it. Now, they might be thinking at that period of time, 200 years from now, just do what? <laughs> but when we mention this to most of our youths and you say, just do it, they automatically know you're talking about Nike. You know, uh, I, I see some of you are giving me blank looks. <laughs> I worry sometimes, are we so detached from the culture? The Nike ad has this uh, sickle-type tick thingy. So uh, those symbols were known to the people of their time. But we are reading this almost 2,000 years later, and we may not fully understand what those symbols are unless we go back and understand what that background is. So apocalyptic writing has that. It uses symbolic imagery which people understand. But not only that, uh, apocalyptic writing is things that make sense on its own being combined together in a way that is incomprehensible. Let me say that again. Things that make sense on its own but do not make sense when they're combined together. For example, there is a beast with four faces. Face of a bear, face of an eagle, face of a lion. Uh, there is a lamb and a lion. Okay, they make sense on their own, but when they're bound together, how does that look like? And so the idea and the intention of this is that when you read Revelation, you do not read it literally, which means you imagine, okay, in heaven there is this creature with four faces, or there is this creature with seven eyes. Uh, no, 
is intended to be uh, read in a way that is read symbolically, but symbolically not according to how you would like to interpret it, but symbolically how the Bible always portrays it as a symbol. So the common symbols that we use, the number seven, the number three, the number 12, uh, multiples of seven, uh, and uh, you know, these terms which you find peppered across the whole Bible, you need to interpret it according to these symbols. So the book of Revelation is in a way a coded message to those who are of the faith, who have the key that they interpret according to Jesus and they interpret according to the word that they have. So, general structure. To the angel of the church in a given city, right. That's the first portion at the beginning. And then it always portrays Jesus. So let me just read uh, what this one says in uh, verse 8 of chapter 2. To the angel of the church in Smyrna, right. These are the words of him who is the first and the last who died and came to life again. So all of the seven letters will always have a depiction of Jesus. Okay, so Jesus says this and he's depicted in glory in terms that are found in verse 13 to 18 of chapter 1. So when you go back to chapter, uh, chapter 1, verse 13 to 18, Jesus is given all these different titles of glory. So those titles John takes and refers to different letters. And those titles are particularly addressed to the church that he's talking to. So when Jesus is referred to as the first and the last who died and came to life again, this whole theme of life, death, resurrection is key towards interpreting what this letter means to Smyrna. And you'll find when we read Smyrna, this whole idea about persecution and faithfulness even unto death is the theme. And so they are being reminded this Jesus has died and is resurrected. You're going to pretty much go through a similar thing. Third part of most of the letters, it says, I know. Okay? And so this is, this is Jesus uh, through the Spirit telling the church, I know some good things about you. So, uh, in most cases, uh, Jesus is quite nice in giving you the good bit. <laughs> he will tell you, oh, very good, Lord, you do this, you know, before he basically whacks you with a but. <laughs> so, I know, and he offers some praise. So, each of the cities are commended for something that they are doing well. Now, why is it important for us to know this? Because as a church, we, when we look at it this way, we understand, okay, if this church was doing this, if we were to do the same we would also be commended. In other words, we adopt what other churches are also doing which have been commended as good. But the second part, uh, after he commends you, then he tells you this is what you're not doing. So there is a statement, but yet nevertheless, variously translated. But essentially, it is always a statement that is contrasted. I have this against you, and it's giving some reproof. So again, as a church, when we read this, if these churches are doing such things, uh, and we too are doing this, then we need to be careful. Uh, we are being warned about that. Then comes a statement, the one who has ears must pay attention to what the Spirit says. 
and finally, the last one is an eschatological promise. What is an eschatological promise? Eschatology is the things of the last matters. Eschatology is a, a Greek word for the last things. Uh, logi is the study of last things. And so, uh, at the end of each letter is a promise about what the end will be like for those who are faithful and who overcome all these challenges that are given to them. Okay? Now, uh, you can go online and you can find that people sometimes break this down to more details, but generally it's this. To a church from Jesus in His glory, say to them these things. You do good, you do not so good things, right? And in some cases, the consequences if you don't do these things. Uh, and an admonition to all. The one who has ears, pay attention to what the Spirit says. And finally, a promise. Now, what can we glean from all these seven letters uh, in his general letter? Each letter is a prophetic word from Jesus. Okay, we see this in chapter 2, verse 1, 2, verse 8. All the beginning sentences of each letter always identifies that it is from Jesus. But it is always through the Spirit. Uh, in chapter 2, verse 7, 2, verse 11, you see the Spirit says. It is the Spirit speaking. And in John chapter, uh, sorry, in Revelation 1, 10, uh, it's the setting of the scene where John is in the Spirit. And so John is in the Spirit, being inspired by the Spirit when he encounters these things. Now, uh, let me also uh, take this moment, right, and invite you to just turn to your neighbor and say, you are blessed right now. Our question, do you feel very blessed? <laughs> yes? Okay, well, let me tell you why you are blessed. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 3, it says, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. Okay? So you might not feel it. You might be feeling, I really had a lousy day today, got off the wrong side of the bed, haven't had my coffee, whatever. But Scripture tells you that because this word has been read aloud and because you are hearing it, you are indeed blessed. And this blessedness means the mystery and the revelation is available to you. You are here and able to hear it. And so the Spirit is inspiring John, and you recall in my prayer early on, before I began, I asked for the Spirit to inspire you here. And so your blessedness comes from this inspiration of the Spirit who is here. Now, the letters are always uh, ending with this statement. It keeps on ending uh, with this consistent statement. It says, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious, okay, so this is the portion which is the eschatological meaning. But all the letters have this statement, the one who has ears or the one who has an ear, let him hear or let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, why is this important to understand? One, it is framed in the plural. So although this letter is addressed to Smyrna, 
or Ephesus or uh, Sardis or Pergamum or Thyatira. It's addressed to a particular church. But the end warnings are given to all. Let all who hear this. And so it's important for us to understand that this whole book of Revelation is given to all the churches. Now, imagine, right, a bishop or a track president or somebody writes a letter to Trinity, to my dearly beloved members of Penang Trinity, you know, from the president. And then he writes that you're doing such wonderful stuff, but <laughs> I have this against you. you know, some of you are doing this, some of you are doing that. It's a very, uh, you know, it's, it's nice. You sayang you, then they whack. <laughs> and then this letter doesn't just come to Trinity. It goes to Wesley. <laughs> it goes to Parit Bunta. It goes to Sungai Petani. It goes to Alastar. It's a personal letter to the church that is sent to all the churches. which is important for us to understand that the things that occur to all the churches are also a lesson to us. Now, of late, when I've been reading uh, on the internet or on our newspapers, many of us have been looking at all the, the sexual abuses that have been occurring in the Catholic Church, in the Anglican Church, in the Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, some might even say, a hey, Methodist Church got ah. But the point is not to say, uh, that's them not us. It's also a letter to all of us to take heed of all these warnings that have occurred elsewhere and to not have that kind of behavior. You don't want to be like that Pharisee who was in the temple and Jesus said to him, this Pharisee, you know, when he prays, he said, I thank you, Lord, that I'm not like that church. You're already guilty. <laughs> you stand condemned. So we learn from this and we read all these letters, then we ask ourselves, does it apply to us? It's flame in the plural. Each church, each of the letters, uh, they're summoned to endure and overcome coming trial. Endure and overcome coming trial. Now, this is quite important because what it means to us is that all churches will endure and have to overcome trial. Anyone who has to endure anything is a form of suffering. And so if your theology is one of avoiding suffering and only having good, uh, you're not in alignment with what Revelation is saying. Revelation is consistently saying that those who are of the faith will be encountering trials, tribulations, testing of the faith, and that they are to overcome I've yet to see a situation where overcoming means jalan senang senang. Very easy. I've yet to see that. But it also gives us an important warning as uh, parents, grandparents, as people who are shepherds. It means that growth for our children or those under our charge means teaching them how to endure and overcome difficulty. Now, how many of you as a parent intentionally put difficulty in front of them? Or how many of you as parents are helping them to identify these are obstacles which we need to help them to overcome? Which means go through it. Huh? 
many of us parents, uh, this, this is what my, my senior friend uh, told me when he was 60. He said, one of the problems we have as a nation after the Second World War, because he lived through the Second World War, is he says, we kind of pampered our children too much and they do not know what difficulty means. So they are, they are unaccustomed to trial and suffering. One of my friends, a senior partner in the firm, uh, in a consulting firm, said, Ron, nowadays uh, our guys will not work past six o'clock. We actually had to organize a dinner for all our new recruits to talk to their parents and tell them it is not uncommon in our consulting practice to work until eight because the deadline requires it. But he says many of our young fellows now don't want to endure difficulty. Many. So, one of the things as pastor I'm telling you is that in all our stories in Revelation, it tells us this enduring and overcoming trial is a consistent pattern of transformation and change. Here's the warning that comes from the general letters. Each of the churches are condemned normally for conforming to the values of their particular city. And so what the warning is given to all these churches is that it's very easy to reflect the values of the culture that you are in and not be vigilant against those values. Why? Because in, the, in all of Scripture, he says, God's ways, not our ways. God's thoughts, higher than our thoughts, not of this world. And so the consistent patterns and values of the culture we are in will indirectly, without us realizing it, seep in unless you are being watchful against this. Why? I'll give you examples. In, uh, in one of the cities, Pergamum, if I'm not mistaken, idolatry was common. And so there was a practice in the church that says, it's okay, you are pure in the spirit and God has already saved you. No matter all this idolatry and sin or no matter the temptation for monetary wealth, God loves you and you will be saved. You can carry on doing what you are doing because your God will save you. Very much what we hear nowadays as well. You can carry on doing what you want to. Carry on in the stuff that you're doing wrong. God loves you. Don't have to change. He can save you but then you become very much like the city you're in. Then you're no longer salt, you're no longer light. You are just one of the people there. How are you any distinct? In order for salt to have flavour, it must be distinct from the rest of the world. So, we are told, as we read all these letters from Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, that all these lessons apply to us. Each church receives the whole book, which means the, the commendation and the admonition, and each church receives Jesus' teaching, although it's directed to one particular church, we must apply it to ourselves. And each church shares in that promise or the eschatological promise that is being talked about in Revelation 21-22, but all the way in Revelation 
So this is the picture that I have that most describes it. Uh, if the shoe fits, uh, wear it. I think the BM one was probably the better uh, translation. I apologize if you don't understand BM. It says there, Siapa temakan cili, dia rasa pedas. So if you read this letter and you feel, Ayo, adoi, <laughs> this is talking to me, then it applies to you. And you need to figure out how to work this through. So let's now come specifically to this letter to Smyrna. What is being said to Smyrna? I want to point out to you, there are seven letters uh, that are written to the seven churches, but only two letters that do not have a condemnation. In other words, only these two churches are fully praised. The first one was Smyrna and the other one was Philadelphia. Philadelphia is uh, towards the latter part, uh, before Laodicea, which is the final church. And uh, in this particular letter to Smyrna, overcoming, or the other translation that puts it is being victorious in verse 11, in Smyrna, demanded withstanding persecution and being faithful even to the point of death in verses 9 and 10. Now, uh, you have your Bible open with you. Let's just quickly go over that because it's only three verses. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, these are the words of him who is the first and the last, the Alpha, the Omega, who died and came to life again. So he is the resurrection. Verse 8, the commendation, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. Now, this is striking because in a city that is really rich, okay, I mentioned Ephesus is rich, Smyrna is also quite rich, it's a port town, and uh, Pergamum, three of the more uh, rich uh, cities, and Laodicea is also quite rich. In a city that is rich, the people in this church of Smyrna are poor. Okay, so they are the marginalized, the outcasts, and they are afflicted. Why? Because as I mentioned, they were being persecuted by fellow Jews who didn't like them. So what the Jews would do is they would accuse these other Jews as being non-Jews. They worship no other God, some other God, not our God. And because of that, they need to bow down to Caesar. And so that is why they are referred to as the synagogue of Satan. Now, uh, some people have taken this term, a synagogue of Satan, therefore to hate the Jews. In fact, a certain portion of the Second World War said, these Jews are of the synagogue of Satan, therefore we are doing God a favor by destroying them. Again, the context must be understood. John himself is a Jew. Right? And all these Christians are Jew. It is not an accusation against Jews. It is the fact that this is a synagogue or a gathering of accusers. Remember the term Satan. Satan in that particular meaning means the accuser, the one who accuses you, the one who is against you. So the synagogue of, of uh, accusers, these people were accusing them of not having any religion. Okay? And contrary to proper belief, uh, uh, during those times, to not have a God was considered to be weird anathema, unheard of. 
In fact, one of the things we find in persecution in ancient history was that they would persecute the, the Christians and blame the Christians that whatever disease or war or disaster that occurred, these Christians are the ones who did it because they don't worship any visible God. Okay. So, uh, reading on, I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan, a synagogue or a gathering of accusers. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. Okay, do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Why specifically 10 days? Why not longer? Why not shorter? Well, the answer again is in the background. You see, when they put you uh, in persecution for 10 days, what they're trying to do is they torture you <laughs> for 10 days in order to wait for you to be sentenced. In other words, that 10 days is not your, your punishment. Huh? Your punishment is going to be said after 10 days. And quite often... Uh, it's one of three. You would either be sent to the mines of uh, 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 mines in one area where you defectively end up dying there, or two, you would be executed, or three, you would be thrown to the wild animals. Essentially, great suffering or death. So the 10 days was intended to torture you into a confession. In other words, they were already condemned. This group of accusers had... Sometimes, quite often, out of selfish interest and trade dispute, would accuse these people. And then they would be hauled up, tortured to confession, and eventually killed. You will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Okay, that's verse uh, 10. Be faithful even to the point of death and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Quite symbolic. Huh? In that time, the victor's crown was a, a, a wreath of uh, olives. Okay, olive uh, thingies. And this crown is crown of life. This life itself is the very thing that adorns your person, the most value uh, to you. Now, I want to highlight certain things. If you read the letter to Smyrna and you read the letter to Philadelphia, both of these two, these two churches are, as I said, the only two churches which are commended. And what is common to the two of them is that both of them are persecuted and endure suffering. Both of them. All the others have begun to conform to the values of their particular city. And if you look at the ancient history of it, both Smyrna and Philadelphia are the two churches that survived beyond all the other churches for an additional 300 years against the onslaught of the Turkish uh, Islamic invasion. Why is that significant? Uh, because... What it is telling us essentially is that these cities reflected the bastion and the stronghold of biblical values. The moment the church, no matter how small, 
or how insignificant they are begins to reflect the values of their city, uh, that's when that city is heading downstream. Okay. And so they are told to be salt and light quite often means to suffer, to endure, to overcome. How do we go about doing that? So Smyrna and Philadelphia are the two longest surviving ones. Every other one has been affected. Ephesus, one of the threats against them was that their lamp would be removed from them. And as a result, physically, geographically, Ephesus was actually moved away. The letter ends with this statement, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Uh, the one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. What is this second death? Well, in all the biblical understanding of it, Jesus said, when you die, you go to sleep. That's what he said about Lazarus. Lazarus is sleeping and he will raise him up. Paul, Timothy, and all the other apostles always refer that when we die, we are going to sleep. But then, then what happens? And Revelation is about to disclose what happens at the sounding of the trumpet, especially the last trumpet, all will rise again and stand before the throne of God, after which judgment will finally be pronounced and those who have earned or who have gained salvation will be led into the presence of the new uh, Jerusalem, okay, the new world. And those who have rejected God get sent into the second death, a second death of eternity. How did the people respond to this? Now, let me tell you the story, which uh, is quite a famous story in, in, uh, in terms of the history of the church. One of the people in Smyrna who would have heard John's letter being read to the church is this man by the name of Polycarp. Polycarp eventually became the bishop of Smyrna. And this is what he said about Polycarp. At the age of almost 80, uh, <clears throat> Let me, let me find this. Yeah, at the age of almost 80, Polycarp was finally caught and brought for trial, accused again of being a non, uh, of an atheist. Uh, so Polycarp, uh, who became Smyrna's bishop, was martyred in 160 AD, okay? Maybe about 80 years later after this letter was written. And when at his trial, he was commanded to curse Christ and to worship the emperor, he stated that he had served the Lord for 86 years and had received only good from him, and how could he forswear his king? He had served God for 86 years and had received only good from him, how could he forswear his king? And thereafter, he was burnt alive. 86-year-old man. Yes. This is the suffering which is being alluded to in this particular letter, that they would be tried, they would be persecuted, they would be brought before trial and told to renounce their faith. But Polycarp was looking towards this, that he would not suffer the second death. Here's the thought to take away from this particular verse. The overcomer's consolation that he or she will not be hurt by the second death 
is a Jewish expression which contrasts the death that all must suffer. All of us will die. Okay, all of us will suffer with the fate of those who are destined never to escape death's power. Okay. Let's say this again. All of us are going to face death. We are going to die. But then, will you be able to escape eternal death? That is the question that we have to deal with. And John's letter to the people of Smyrna is that you will all eventually die. Die with honour, with faith, persevering to the end so that you will overcome the second death. In that sense, you would escape death. <clears throat> that is why in the beginning of the letter, he says he is the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega, the one who has died but is alive again. It's a reminder to them that they have this promise as well. So, in this sense, uh, they, <coughs> the, the, the people of Smyrna are being reminded uh, that to die through human wrath, to die through human wrath, in other words, persecution, uh, is small in comparison to the suffering of the judgment of God. I say that again. Eh? Dying from the wrath of man is small in comparison to dying from the wrath of God for eternity. That is the two choices uh, that are available to us. Now let me try and bring this uh, to a close. I've said this earlier on. The church, no matter how powerless in a given society, is a guardian of its culture. And I'm not talking about the culture of the society it's in, but the culture of Christ. That is in us. Do you know how big a population we are in Malaysia? Anyone know? Uh, Malaysia, I'm told right now, 31 million people. If your statistic is still 25 million, you're about 10 years behind. Okay, we are at 31 million people. How many Christians in Malaysia? Apparently, 8.6%. This was 2017. Now, if you go to cross to East Malaysia, uh, the figure changes. Uh, there, I think Christians are about 30% of the population. But in Malaysia, the average, the total average all around is 8.6%. Uh, right. Now, let me ask you an interesting thing. In terms of the growth of Christianity in Malaysia, how fast do you think it's growing? The global average is 8 point, uh, sorry, the global average, global, uh, according to uh, the Joshua Project, which tracked these statistics, the global average of uh, growth in Christian uh, confession is 2.6%. 2.6%. So where do you think Malaysia is? Okay, you got a number? I tell you what the number reported is. Malaysia is at 2.9. <laughs> okay, la, you can see we're slightly above the global average, but it's nothing to shout about. Do you know which country has the highest growth in Christianity? 
Uh, one person I can see mouthing China. Yes, China is quite high. But let me tell you one that has surprised many of us. Uh, Iran. And the growth rate is 19.6%. Okay, you can go to the, you can search this on Joshua Project, uh, find it. Iran as a, you might call it the first or the second most fundamentalist uh, Christian, uh, what, uh, Islamic state, okay, uh, Shia, Shia Islam, has the highest rate of growth in the Christian world, observable. People are leaving the nation, getting baptized, and then coming back into Iran. And I've seen some of the testimonies. Almost all of them, without one, say Christ appeared to them in a dream. Okay? Because in addition to pointing out uh, the, the evangelical growth rate, it also says how well uh, uh, there are five categories uh, from level one to level five. Malaysia is level four in terms of ease of access to Christian material. We are number four. Some resistance, but it's available. Uh, Iran is one. <laughs> in other words, almost impossible. You, you get caught with that, you die. And yet, they have growth of 19.6% which tends to show you that the church tends to grow in areas of persecution and suffering. And it is because these people are there, they are the ones who are shaping and changing our communities. So we might look at ourselves like, oh yeah, we're only 8%, but that's huge if we want to compare ourselves with places like Iran or any other places. No matter how powerless we might feel in a given society, we are the guardians of that Christian culture and value. And we need to be able to want to defend it even unto death. Not say defend, but stand up for it. Not fight, but to hold on to it. Now, uh, suffering has this rather mysterious component. Um, why do I say that? It's a mysterious component because when you compare 2 verse 10 and 3 verse 10, it's comparing uh, Smyrna and Laodicea. In Smyrna, Jesus tells them, you're going to suffer 10 days and after that you'll be persecuted. Be faithful even unto death. But if you look at Philadelphia, what happens is because you have been faithful, you will escape this time of trial and death. So what I'm saying here is that when you endure suffering, some of that suffering will be alleviated. In other words, you will escape. But some, no. If you look even at the example of Jesus, Jesus escaped to Egypt. But then he came back and then he was eventually crucified on the cross. What does that tell us as a church? All of us will have to go through some form of enduring and suffering and overcoming for the sake of Christ. Some of us will be relieved of it. In other words, it will be lifted off. But some of us may eventually end up dying for it. Do you think this is happening in Malaysia? Uh, sorry. <laughs> this is the very Malaysian thing. <laughs> Yes and no, I don't know. We are. 
on the on the 13th of February, I think, uh, we recognized two years uh, after which Pastor Raymond Ko was adopted. Uh, apparently, from what we can see, by enforcement people suspected. Is he the only one? No. Uh, many of us still in our lifetime, Operation Lalang, uh, many of us in our lifetime who work with other uh, nations realize, yes, people have been abducted for their faith. They've been persecuted. They've been killed. They have disappeared. So is it real and is it present? Yes. Do we need to teach our children about this? Yes. Because I have this responsibility to teach my child how to overcome, to endure, to overcome. I cannot live a life where they are constantly running away. For a, re for a season, maybe. To pray against it, yes. But if it does come, will you be able to make that answer? How do we move forward from this? First point. Suffering has a way of reminding us which things in life really matter. I put that as a statement for you to think about. Recently, Chinese New Year, everybody in the car. One of the questions you're asking, why are we going through this traffic jam? Uh, because we want to visit our relatives. Is it important? Yes. <laughs> How much are you willing to suffer for it? it kind of determines what value we place to it and it's not tangible, it's not money, it's not the amount of petrol you use, the amount of hours, it's what is written in your heart. I'm spending this time to go and suffer through this because it matters. And our children, to some extent, need to be taught that there are some things that you have to suffer through because it matters. Truth matters. Eternal life matters. Love matters. And to suffer for the sake of love is telling those who are unable to see that you cannot quantify it. You cannot put a figure on it. I'm willing to give my whole life for this because it matters. Secondly, it is important to know God's heart before we face suffering. And what he means is that this whole message of you're going to go through suffering is only best received when you're not going through suffering itself. It's best to teach your children young before they come to the point when they're going to hit that roadblock. Because what happens when we're going through pain is that we interpret God's love according to the suffering that we're going through as opposed to the other way, which is I know that Christ died on me for, uh, died on the cross for me. That defines His love for me. And I know that I am loved. And because I am loved, whatever suffering I go through is something I willingly go through because it is worth it. But if I were to interpret God's love according to the suffering that I go through, very likely you go, God, if you love me, why do you put me through this suffering? In which case, your automatic reaction is therefore, you don't love me which is the furthest thing from the truth. He died for our sakes. So it's important to know God's heart, to be in a relationship with Him before you face this suffering, rather than to try and seek out this suffering, uh, seek out Him 
kind of like after a post-event and measure His love for you in accordance to how much suffering you're going through. That's kind of like the wrong measure. Third one, and this one I think may be the, possibly the most sensitive for some people. Notice in the case of Smyrna, John doesn't write to him and say, flee from the hills, get out of Smyrna, you're going to die. He says to them, this is what's going to happen. Be faithful even unto death. Many in our nation feel that we need to relocate. Okay, we relocate in order to find a safer place, better place where we don't have this kind of persecution or stupidity or whatever. I've lived overseas. <laughs> I've been there long enough and, and known what it is and I've come back and I tell you it's no different. I have friends who write to me who are Christians who have left persecution in their country and they're living in uh, UK and America and they tell me it is just as easy for us to be killed here for our faith as it is back in our homeland. Maybe higher risk there. So then how do we choose? And the answer is not, oh, let's go charging into the, into, into the place where we're going to die. No. The way to answer that is, where am I called to be? In my relationship with God, where am I supposed to be? In the case of Jesus, there was a period of time when he was to go to Egypt because his time had not come. But when his time was come, he faced it and he went through it. And for you, some of you, it may be a season where I need to go for a period of time and find my place there. But where are you called to be? Where is God speaking to you to say this is where you need to be? Until that happens it's not a very safe place to be. In entering into ministry, I realized the safest place that you can be is in the hand of God, wherever that geographically is. So if I'm called to be in Malaysia, so be it. If at one point my life is at stake, have I decided yet that it will be it? Pastor Gawi and I had this conversation once. We said, if ever you are put into jail and your life is at stake like polycarp, what will your answer be? And most of us would say, uh, I don't know. When the time comes, then I'll decide. And here's my warning. When the time comes, you won't be ready to decide. You need to decide now. Because when you decide now, you have already affirmed that it is enough, that this matters enough for me to give my life. It's kind of like a person who decides, you know, uh, when confronted with temptation, sexy, voluptuous woman, for example, in front of you, are you going to fall into adultery? And your answer is like, uh, kind of depends at that time. <laughs> it depends on what? <laughs> well, it depends on the situation. Lah. No. You want to avoid adultery, decide right now that if ever that, that thing happens, you run away from it and you will never, ever, ever go down this path because you have decided that's important. 
And so now you're not driving around recklessly. You have basically become a defensive uh, driver. You're avoiding all these things and falling into those pitfalls. So, brothers, my challenge to you, think about these things. What are you suffering for? Are you running away from the things that God has called you to suffer through? Because those things matter. What are you suffering for that really matters? For some of you, it might be degree, it might be work. Really? Is that what you think is worth suffering for? What about love? What about truth? What about God's glory? Honouring God? Are you suffering for the right reasons, enduring and overcome? Secondly, do you know God's heart's love for you so that if and when suffering does come, you have already prepared yourself with the answer at hand, I'm willing to give all out of love for Christ. And thirdly, will you be where God wants you to be rather than run away from the suffering? I pray that you find the right time in order to stand your ground and be faithful even unto death. Let us pray. O oh Lord, your word release your spirit in our midst. Speak to each and every one of us, Lord, in your own way. And will you cause all of us, Lord, to have the courage to endure, to persevere, to overcome, to be willing to suffer for the sake of that which is right and good and out of your love for us, Lord. Teach us, Lord, to trust your heart for us and to be faithful even unto death. We ask this and pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.